Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Historian Foster Ackerman Jr. in his new book, A New History of Lexington, Kentucky, writes, It can be difficult to encapsulate almost two and a half centuries of a community, but if there is a common thread, it is that almost every time Lexington was about to make a major misstep, someone stood up with a better idea. You can talk to Foster Ackerman Jr. about those missteps and new ideas on October the 29th at the Kentucky Book Festival, where Ackerman will be just one of 150 or so authors in attendance at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green. And by the way, before we finish, Foster, we're going to talk about those missteps and those new ideas, too. Good, Bill. Thank you. Our website, uh, kybookfestival.org, has all the information regarding the Saturday, October 29th event, the literary lunch on the 27th of October with Geraldine Brooks and Emily Bingham, the Commerce Lexington Spotlight Breakfast with Steve Wilson and Laura Lee Brown, and lots more, including special guests John Meacham and Barbara King-Sauver, and how you can get tickets and free admission and programs and all of this stuff, um, again, on our website, kybookfestival.org. Foster, welcome back to our podcast microphone. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, We will, uh, as I said, revisit the uh, missteps and and new ideas, but uh, your book has been out uh, for uh, several months. We're delighted that you're going to be uh, a guest, and I know uh, as we've just uh, spent the last 30 minutes before the podcast talking about other uh, moments in history, uh, this has to be, because of your fondness for your home county and city and um, a, um, a labor of love uh, going back and doing this research. But, of course, this is not your first book. Tell us briefly about what else you've written about and what you've been involved in when it comes to the history of Kentucky and history of Lexington. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, this is actually book number eight, four of which were privately published and four have been done by the History Press or Arcadia. Uh, for example, I've done a 225th history of First United Methodist Church in Lexington, uh, which uh, has some interesting elements to it, including a church trial, which made the front page of the local newspapers. <laughs> uh, I've done a hidden history of horse racing, which includes the history, for example, of Good Samaritan uh, Episcopal Church there in Belcourt. Uh, which was entirely funded by the thoroughbred industry because the priest involved made an impassioned speech against banning uh, wagering at racetracks. Uh, Prior to the Civil War, there were 623 working tracks, thoroughbred tracks, in the United States. The uh, do-good movement, the progressive movement, which led to banning alcohol, took off after racing because people would, you know, blow their wages on booze and horses, and that was bad. And so rather than try to kill all the saloons, they went after horse tracks. Mm. 
and it came down to a point where there were only four working tracks in the United States, two in Kentucky, Churchill and Lexington, and two in Chicago. And the bill came before the legislature to ban uh, wagering. It passed. It went to the governor who vetoed it. It came back to the legislature for an override, and the veto was sustained by one vote. Uh, and this, this priest had made an impassioned uh, plea for how modern wagering, uh, paramutual wagering, was less evil than bookies. Uh, and, and so the, the thoroughbred industry came to him and said, well, we want to give you a Cadillac. He said, I don't need a Cadillac. He said, we want to give you this. We want to give you money. We, and good man of the cloth that he was, he turned them all down. And they kept after him, and he finally said, build me a church. And the thoroughbred industry built the Church of the Good Shepherd down on Main Street. Uh, and it has a marble plaque in the narthex thanking the equine industry, thanking the horse for building that particular church. And, and, and that, what was the date? What was the period? Uh, this was uh, early 1930s, oh. before Prohibition was repealed, yeah. before the progressive movement backed out. Yeah. But it was, uh, uh, it, I mean, you can't get more Lexington than having a church. And, and you know, grooms would pay 50 cents in. It wasn't just the, the owners putting large bucks in, but their their entire jobs had been saved. And so they were happy to support uh, that piece of, of creating a new church. Well, I'm uh, leafing through uh, your book, uh, A New History of Lexington, trying to find, and I know you'll be able to direct me right to it, but uh, reading excerpts uh, that, that horse racing uh, was or is considered America's original sport activity, or how, how did you uh, how did you word that in in? It's actually the jockeys. That that the, they were the first what athletic class. A- athletic class, I see. Okay. Uh, they were paid NBA level salaries for the time. Uh, once the war was the Civil War was over, and uh, the black jockeys of the South. One, could travel up north freely, and two, the southern tracks were decimated, so they had no business down there. Uh, They made tremendous... There was one black jockey who was paid a $25,000 annual retainer to be on call. (laughs) Not to run. If If he rode, he was paid extra. But this one race owner paid him that money just to be there. On call if I need you to come to New, to New York and, and ride in a race for me. And that kind of money back then was enormous. Uh, adjusted for inflation, I have no idea what it would be, but several hundred thousand dollars, if not easily e- more than that. Easily, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's uh, let's go back to uh, the beginning and the way you uh, have put your uh, book together. And uh, of course, you start with with uh, an area that is often overlooked and not thought of uh, by most people who don't study history like you do, but that is the, the Native Americans who were, of course, here first and are sometimes forgotten. Uh, tell us about uh, the, the tribal units um, 
Uh, tell us about uh, the myth surrounding Kentucky's name, which maybe some yes. people have heard and others haven't, and uh, where that, uh, what what uh, tribe that came from. That's, so just talk about the, the Native Americans who were here before the white settlers. When I was taught Kentucky history in seventh grade, they lied to us uh, on two accounts, in, in all honesty. And it's not my teacher's fault. Uh, this was what she was given. One of, a, one of the lies was that no Indians lived in Kentucky, and, and that, was, that was PR. It was, you're not going to feel like you're dispossessing somebody if you move to Kentucky and settle because it's vacant land. Well, that's not, that's not the case. There were, there were three or four tribes in different parts of Kentucky. Uh, the uh, Cherokee were in the south. The Shawnee were in the, uh, along the Ohio River. The old, the old phrase, I'll be back if the creek don't rise, yeah. has nothing to do with water. It has to do with the creek Indian tribe. If they don't rise up and attack, I'm coming back. Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Is That's that, right. Is that right? That, My is, that has gracious. nothing to do with the water going through the county. The creek had, Indians. The creek Indians. There, were, there was a large Iroquois settlement in southern Madison County. Over 400 men. So you got to anticipate it might have been a close to 1,000 with women and children in the settlement. And I don't pretend to know, nobody knows, how to pronounce their word that became Kentucky. But it is generally acknowledged of the three or four comp- competing uh, candidates for that word that it meant land of the meadows. And so if you're Daniel Boone and you've come through the Appalachian Mountains and you're working your way down the hill and you come to the plain of central Kentucky, and you ask somebody, well, what is this called? Well, it's the land of the meadows. It's not the mountains. It's not the river. It's central Kentucky. And so he picked up that Indian word, Kentucky, or something similar, as the name of this area. In the uh, era of our ways, the era that uh, we've grown up with, Cane uh, Tuck has nothing to do with the original pronunciation you uh, you spell it in your history uh, with a, a K-E-N-T-A-K-I, is that correct? K-I or K-E. I K-E. mean, it was not, was not a written language, so we're kind of, you know, going and guessing uh-huh. on this. So that's where, that's where the land of the meadows, that's where our state name, we think, originates from. Yeah, that's the best candidate yeah. of, of, of the ones I could research. Yeah. The, other, the other lie was that Kentucky means dark and bloody ground. Well, no, as I just said, it means land of the meadows. But the phrase dark and bloody ground came out of a Indian chief in Tennessee when the North Carolinians made a treaty to buy and wanted to establish the state of Franklin in south central Kentucky and central Tennessee the chief said, you can go to this river and no further. This is as far as you get. If you cross this river, this will become a dark and bloody ground because the Indians were going to mm-hmm. resist. 
And, and so this all comes together to form the romance and the PR for selling Come to Kentucky. Nobody lives here. It's free land. And, and uh, that was how to encourage settlement. Were at that time most of the Native Americans uh, warring um, uh, tribes and Well, it is, it, is tr- it is true that Kentucky at large was a hunting ground, but they had their own areas. So the, the Indians did not fight each other. Native Americans did not fight each other. They had staked out for decades or longer their own territories. And as, as the Virginians and Pennsylvanians came into Kentucky, uh, they retreated and retreated back to the Ohio River and ultimately across the Ohio River. Well, let me ask you this, and, and this is not in your book, but it's just a, a, a curious uh, question that I have because, as I just mentioned to you before we started, uh, Kentucky Humanities was in Paducah this weekend for an event there. And uh, although I've been to Princeton several times, uh, I wanted to show someone uh, the little park there uh, of the Trail of Tears. And I, I've never seen the, uh, the Trail of Tears um, monument or um, park in Hopkinsville. And they were primarily Cherokee, is mm-hmm. that correct? So tell me, um, and I also, uh, from, from the historical plaque, uh, over 16,000 Cherokee who originated where? Were there some Kentuckians in that uh, group, or did they come from North Carolina and, and Tennessee? Well, there's and, a strong Cherokee tradition in North Carolina. Uh-huh. I don't pretend to be an expert in, in Indian history, but they were driven west mostly out of North Carolina, but there, was, there were Cherokee in Southern Kentucky, and so they were driven into Western Kentucky. And of course, General Jackson uh, led the big push to, to, which was part of, part of a war, undeclared war with Spain, to conquer Florida and the Southern Deep South states. Mm-hmm. Uh, by getting the Indian tribes out of there, they were, drove out the Spanish, the, tribes were the allies of the Spanish, so to get rid of the Spanish control, uh, you had to get rid of the Indians. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll revisit that someday and talk about uh, the the Trail of Tears, but it has a real Kentucky story uh, there, and uh, tragic as it uh, is, uh, was then and, and is today. Foster, in, in your book, it's, uh, it's so well organized, and it's chronological in, in the way you've put it together. But uh, without uh, going to each uh, subject in each chapter, uh, I'll just let you choose. And, and if you're, you've been fascinated with the founding of, of Lexington and, and uh, who was there at the time and, and how did it all occur, just talk about a little bit, if you will, the, the founding and, and how it became a, uh, a metropolitan area after becoming uh, at first just a, a settlement, then a village and and then beyond. So just uh, uh, take well, the, the microphone and, and give and, us a and history go with lesson. it. The, the, the short story is, of course, McConnell Springs. The McConnell brothers and a group of about 20 men came over from Virginia uh, looking for land. Uh, they were surveying, staking claims. The trick was you had to 
make an improvement and sow corn. And so McConnell built a small lean-to cabin near what is now McConnell Springs Park. The, the key to sowing corn is that corn was not native to Kentucky and it was tall when mature. So if you sowed a crop of corn, even if you had to leave and go back and come back later, somebody could walk out there and say, well, this is not Kentucky. This is six-foot-tall stalk of corn above the other vegetation, and, and so it's been settled, it's been claimed. <coughs> uh, a couple of years after... Uh, 1776 and the Battle of Lexington in Massachusetts, which is where the name came from. It's not named after the town, it's named after the battle. Uh, Colonel Richard Patterson and another group of a couple dozen men were sent from Fort Herod to build initially a blockhouse, uh, later expanded to a station, uh, which were the beginnings of the town of Lexington, a long town branch. It was described by one visitor. We don't have any actual, you know, artistic rendering. Of. We have somebody who's made mm -hmm. up what he thought mm -hmm. it looked like. Mm -hmm. But it was three rows, described as three rows of cabin, all facing inwards, connected by uh, fort walls, logs and planks, no outside windows. The idea was not this was not a military fort. This was a place of refuge in the event of an Indian attack while somebody on a fast horse mm. ran down Harrodsburg Road to Fort Herod to get the militia to come back. And, and that's where Lexington started. And shortly after that, certainly by eight, 1780, Indian incursions were essentially done. The, the Native Americans had retreated over the Ohio. They were not attempting to drive out the, the white settlers. And the walls were taken down and streets run through uh, and, and we go from there. Uh, it, and, it, and Lexington rapidly became the major community, I'll call it. I wouldn't call it a city at this point, a couple of hundred cabins. Uh, but the first general store was in Lexington. And Lexington, even today, is an intersection of railroads and an intersection of interstates, which largely has driven our economy. At that time, if you landed at Limestone on the Ohio River, today's Maysville, then the road led to Lexington. If you came through Cumberland Gap and, and the trail through Danville, it led to Lexington. If you wanted to go to Louisville, it was the Leestown Road going towards Louisville. Uh, the first passenger railroad in the United States, now not, not the first railroad because there were timber carting railroads in New York and the Northeast, but the first passenger rail was the Frankfurt-Lexington Railroad Line which was intended to meet up with the Frankfurt-Louisville line, which they were then building to Frankfurt. The president of the railroad was Robert Todd, Mary Todd, Lincoln's father. And the Mary, famous Mary Todd house on Main Street, his original property ran back to Town Branch. Hmm. Uh, and the railroad came across 
the back of his lot, and he was president of the railroad. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know what the economic deal was, but he brought the train through his mm-hmm. own property. You know, most uh, large cities today, and, and maybe some as they were being developed uh, of, of, of some commerce, were built on uh, riverways, uh, mm-hmm. on waterways, uh, uh, m- mostly big rivers, uh, town branch, uh, being really just a creek, just a small Not navigable stream. at all, yeah. Yeah. So um, where you can see that uh, Owensboro, Louisville, um, you know, name your city, um, uh, Henderson, I mean, they're all on, on large bodies of water. How did, how did Lexington luck out, <laughs> if you will, without having a navigable waterway uh, yet you were describing how successful they were in, in other ways, and maybe that's the, re- that, that's the answer. Well, part of it is we had a great number of springs in the uh, Town Branch Valley, uh, today's Vine Street. Uh, there's, a, there's an old watercolor that shows like 20 or 30 springs just kind of erupting out of the hill and draining down. So there's lots of fresh water, mm-hmm. very good soil. But early on, the road to Leestown, and you think about Leestown Pike, uh, it's a very, very straight road. Leestown, which is now absorbed by Frankfurt, was as far up the Kentucky River as a boat, navigable boat, could go. And so the importance of Leestown was get your produce to Leestown, then you can ship it downstream. Hmm. But one thing I want to, I do want to mm-hmm. address during our talk here. Of the half dozen histories of Lexington prior to mine, nobody talked about African Americans other than in a slavery context, and I recognized that was a gap, uh, and I worked hard to try to fill it, and I couldn't find anything, and I even called the Filson Society in Louisville which is the preeminent historical society. And I said, what do you have on Louisville pre-1860? I'll argue by analogy. And they said, we don't. We don't have anything. Nobody has anything. Well, thanks to the pandemic, the UK librarians had the time to expand their online references. And I discovered two unpublished master's theses dealing with free African-Americans in Lexington pre-Civil War. One focused on their occupations, another on where they lived. And you look at the modern history of Lexington, say post-World War II, and you think, well, you have Kincaid Town, and you have Davies Bottom, and you have these 15 different settlements on the edge of town, and the easy conclusion is, well, that's Jim Crow, that's segregation. These were segregated communities. Well, the truth of the matter is, pre-1860, almost nobody in Lexington owned a horse. So if you were going to work somewhere, you needed to live in reasonable walking distance of your job. If you're a shoemaker, a barber, even if you're a domestic, free domestic worker, uh, it doesn't do to walk two miles across town. Lexington's uh, city boundary was at one mile from the center of the old courthouse. So we had a circular mm-hmm. city boundary. And if you imagine that as a white dinner plate, 
and you take a, a pepper grinder and just grind pepper flakes onto that plate, they will scatter everywhere. That's what we were. We were a fully integrated community uh, until the Civil War. In 1860, our population was about 10,000, 40% black, free and enslaved. After the Emancipation Proclamation, by 1870, we had grown by 50% to 15,000 people. Almost all of that, you, you, you take out the births and the deaths, almost all of that 5,000 increase were free blacks who left their farms and came to Lexington. And of course, we didn't have 5,000 hotel rooms and apartments sitting around waiting for somebody to come to town. So they settled where they could. And our rural communities, some of which we've now absorbed by the city, were the result of free blacks, newly freed blacks, settling where they could, where somebody would allow them to settle. And, and that is something that no other history of Lexington has been able to explore because I discovered these manuscripts. The uh, historians uh, that uh, I've read and, and, and talked with uh, and uh, sometimes it's fictionalized, uh, sometimes in poetry even, um, will tell you that uh, the, and, and you have a chapter entitled The Black Horseman of, of the Bluegrass, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the one of the original tracks, I don't know if it was the original track, was located near downtown. Uh, talk a little bit about that and uh, who was involved in, the, in horse racing at that time? Well, the first races in Lexington were straight course, not oval, but, but a straight run, mm -hmm. matched horses two or three down Main Street. Uh, and, of course, the community wasn't very fond of looking over their shoulder and hearing th thundering hooves <laughs> coming down. <laughs> on Main Street, if On you can Main imagine. Street, yeah. yeah. And so the trustees banned racing on Main City trustees banned racing on Main Street down to the city commons a long town branch, but again, that's where people walked for exercise, and so that was not popular. <laughs> the first rate official racetrack in Lexington was at the crest of the hill between High Street and Maxwell, down to Bolivar Street, which is where there was a stream, and it was, again, a straight course race, uh, and you watered your horses down at the stream at the end of the thing, but it was outside the city limit. So it was outside the governance of the city trustees. Henry Clay was in the group that started the Williams Brothers track, which was the first oval track in Lexington, at the back half of what is today the Lexington Cemetery and a neighborhood behind that. Uh, and, and you have to understand, you know, putting up a one-mile oval chewed up a whole lot of farmland. So you had to be willing to make concessions or get paid or put up money or whatever in order to do that. Uh, that led to the establishment of the first jockey club in the United States was in Lexington. Henry Clay was on the board, uh, and, and Postlewaite and Todd and you know very famous early Lexingtonians. Eventually that became... Uh, I think it was sold, the Williams family sold it, 
and they bought land at what is today Fifth and Race Streets uh, and established the Kentucky Association track in 1836, no, 1824, uh, as the track in Kentucky. Hmm. Uh, and I could go on for an hour about stories. And that's stories. pretty close to where the Isaac Murphy Park is? Just, yes. Yeah. Near the, there, not, not, near, not right there. but Yeah, Isaac Murphy's house had a, a rooftop balcony overlooking the track. And, and the, mm-hmm. the story is that he would go up there and watch other jockeys and horses training and figure out how to beat them <laughs> and then go down to the track with his mount, yeah. having, having scoped them out. Uh, but that, that track lasted until... Uh, 1932, when ultimately it was bankrupt as a result of the Depression. The thoroughbred industry looked around for another site, bought the land from Colonel Keene that is now Keeneland Racetrack, and established, starting in 1936, what is today Keeneland Racetrack out there. Uh, So there's a long... um history and some interesting uh, characters uh, that came along, uh, as well as, you told us, well-known Kentuckians and, and Lexingtonians like Henry Clay and, and, and many others. I'm talking to Foster Ackerman on our podcast today. Uh, Foster is the author of um, a new publication uh, that he's put together called A New History of Lexington, Kentucky, with some new facts and figures uh, uh, and uh, this is his uh, eighth, I think he told us a few minutes ago, uh, uh, historical uh, book um, or book of history. Uh, we are going to continue our conversation uh, right after we hear from our good friends at uh, Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres. Explore the interrelatedness of the arts. Travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Foster, uh, skipping ahead just a bit as we uh, continue our conversation about the new history of Lexington, and there's there's a lot in this, and I have to, if if I may just make one comment, it is a, a very uh, concise um, and very readable uh, history, uh, and I think you've done a, maybe gone out of your way to, um, it's not your... It's a very valuable history book. It's if someone out there is listening to us and thinks it's uh, uh, six hundred pages, I just heard that uh, John Meacham's new book on Lincoln Lincoln is nine hundred pages. Mm. <laughs> and and well, I hope that's accurate. Uh, that's a, that's a that's a long book. Um, but l- let's let's go ahead because this this has did was and. Uh, is today uh, a source of some controversy, and that's growth versus uh, no growth, and and where Lexington being somewhat unique, at least in Kentucky, and uh, continues to be debated uh, back and forth about the urban boundary and all of that. 
Give us a little background on all of that and, and, and where we are today on that. Well, let's go back to the early 1950s. You had Lexington and you had Fayette County. This was pre-merger. We were not an urban county. We were a city and a county. The growth pattern was uh, to take horse farms and create a subdivision and then ask to be annexed to the city. Well, that was a major financial burden to the city because now you had to run utilities, you had to get sewers, you had to provide fire and police. Uh, and the response was to create the urban service boundary, which was the first in the United States to do this. And it basically says, here's the line, and thou shall not develop outside this line until everything is done inside. Uh, and, and that kind of, that, that focused growth. I mean, I remember as a 16-year-old when I got my driver's license, uh, a friend of mine lived in Gainesway, and the city had annexed the subdivision of Gainesway and annexed the right-of-way of Taste Creek Road. And so you got past Lakewood, and, and you would drive on a city road through the county to get to the city subdivision. Mm -hmm. And that, that was part of the problem. So the city acted to contain, and by state law, every seven years, the city, now the urban county, has to review the boundary and see whether it warrants expansion. And there was a period of time uh, up to the point where Pam Miller was mayor where uh, the building community really, really wanted to build more. The historic movement had come up by that point, and they really, really didn't want to expand. And it was the focus of a couple of mayoral races. Uh, and, and Mayor Miller managed to balance the interest of growth and no growth. And that's held for... 15 years or so, and we're into, we're into a review right now. And um, because you have lived here all your life, what, uh, what is your... The, the debate is, seems to me to be a little bit uh, under um, the other stories that we see in the headlines. But if the review is going on right now, what is your uh, thoughts about what might, what might occur? What might well, there, there, two things have happened in the last 15 years. One is the development community, the home builders, made good on their threat to leave town. And so several of our major home building companies now are building in Tennessee. They're building in other parts of Kentucky. Their business continues to be successful, but not at the expense of our horse farms, and that's the other side of it. Uh, the, uh, an element of UK did a study a few years ago across the equine industry, all the breeds, all the jobs, from, from the owners to the stable hands, and found that there was something like $17 million of economic benefit each year mm -hmm. to Lexington to having the horse farms. Mm -hmm. And, and so that becomes the balance. 
the the Nature Alliance just had an op-ed this week that said there were 17,000 acres inside the urban service boundary that were unbuilt or underbuilt. Now, part of the problem is they don't happen to occupy a one-square-mile block. Mm-hmm. You know, they are scattered. Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's an issue. Uh, but you've got the horse industry. You've got our beautiful horse land, and you've got the, the, the uh, good soils. The other thing I will say is that the uh, Planning Commission staff has become more sophisticated in their science and have been mapping, for example, where the bedrock is too close to the surface to allow a gravity sewer system to work. You'd have to dig rock mm-hmm. or blow up rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this other place over here has really, really good Mari loam soil, and you don't want to just pave that. That's just that's the best soil there is. So you start looking for parts of the county where the bedrock is down far enough that you can drop sewers, gravity sewers, don't need pump stations, where the soil is not particularly good, comparatively good, uh, used to drive to Clark County out old Winchester Road, and you could tell where the soil changed because it suddenly stopped being horse farms and became corn. Mm. Just, I mean, it was like a line was mm-hmm. drawn. Uh, so there's a, there are a lot of elements going on to yeah. this, and, and probably one reason that we're not here, well, two reasons. One, the crime level is taking mm-hmm. the headlines, but the other reason is that all of, everybody has acknowledged these factors are valid. Mm-hmm. And so let's kind of pull information together. And we've got a mayoral election going on, an urban county council going on, and somebody nobody's going to start a fight. <laughs> in the middle of all that. In the middle of all that. Let's wait and see who gets elected. Uh, Foster, uh, in, uh, in your conclusion, um, uh, retrospective, uh, I will uh, end up where we started, and that are, are the missteps and, and uh, better ideas. Uh, and again, uh, for the listeners, uh, it can be difficult to encapsulate almost two and a half centuries of a community. But if there was a common thread, it is that almost every time Lexington was about to make a major misstep, someone stood up with a better idea. Give us one example of, uh, uh, of how that occurred and what you're writing about. Well, there there are several, but uh, perhaps the most dramatic. Gosh, the most dramatic. <laughs> uh, back before merger, the interstates were coming to Lexington, which oddly enough, you know, most interstates cross at the state capital, and that's not Kentucky's case. Sixty-four goes through Frankfurt, but they cross at Lexington, and Plan A was to come down, think about this, come down Old Frankfurt Pike from Louisville through what is today Rupp Arena, down the Vine Street Quarter and then out Winchester Road and match up with 64. Plan B was out North Broadway. The business community was concerned about Plan B for this reason. Historically, if it was time to go shop and you were in the mountains, it would take a day to get to Lexington. You would rent a hotel room. You would shop the next day. You would go back to your hotel room. You would have dinner at restaurants. And the third day, you would drive back up east. 
And they were concerned that if you could get from Pikeville to Lexington in two hours, then they would the, the commerce would keep going to Louisville or turn right and go to Cincinnati, and our business community would lose. Mm-hmm. So the business community and the Chamber of Commerce and downtown merchants and everybody favored A. I mean, just imagine old Frankfurt Pike becoming a four-lane highway right now. I'm just trying to picture that. You know, I mean, it's a historic byway. Yeah. Uh, and as they got closer and the, and the contractors were leaving Frankfurt and they needed to make their calls and start buying right away, came to Mayor Foster Pettit, again, when pre-merger, and said, well, Mayor, we're ready. He said, no, you're not. You're, you're going out North Broadway. Mayor Pettit was kind enough to give me some personal files in the two-hour interview as I was researching this, and I said, Mayor, how did you stop this? It was greased. It was an approved plan. He said, I had the votes. I didn't want an expressway coming through my hometown, and so I told him to take plan B. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could speculate for half an hour on what Lexington mm-hmm. might look like if the interstate were down through the middle of mm-hmm. town. But that is one of several instances yeah. over 200 years where somebody stood up and said, no, yeah. I don't think so. Better idea. Better idea. And he got uh, much support for that. Yes, he did. Yeah. Well, Foster Ackerman, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us uh, Again, uh, our dear listeners, uh, it is a new history of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, Foster will be at the October 29th yes. the Kentucky Book Festival out at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green. Uh, one of the best days Kentucky has to offer uh, anyone, whether or not you're a Lexington native, a Kentucky uh, person, or from out of state. We've had a few of those visit us in the past uh, who listen to this podcast. We invite you to come on out and see Foster and and um, talk with him about the history of Lexington and many other historical uh, events and tales that he's written about and researched over the years. He'll be, he'll be glad to say hello to you. I certainly will, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.